We're going to read from Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. If uh, you want to follow with me on the screen, that'll be great. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, just go back because I wasn't quite there, (laughs) but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I had two nightmares last night. One was that the moon blew up and showered meteors to earth, which destroyed many major cities. Didn't wake up. Other nightmare, got here, got up to do this, didn't have my notes, woke up in a cold sweat, heart racing. So that says a lot about uh, myself. Anyway, this morning, I'm going to be talking about football fans, allergies, and why the council tried to block the night shelter. I'm going to tell the story of how a stoner got stoned and why that's a really good example to all of us. So there's my clickbait. You're going to click and dive in with me. Church is more than church. What does that mean? The passage this morning is taken from the letter to the Romans and it's written by a guy called Paul who used to be called Saul. And he, at first, was definitely not one of Jesus' eager followers probably didn't hear Jesus talking when Jesus was teaching and and walking in Jerusalem. Definitely not a fan, but something happened to Paul. He's literally en route to go and round up a load of Christians and put them in jail when he was blinded by the light, had an encounter with Jesus, and it changed everything for him. And then he spent several years learning about who Jesus was and his mission and his teaching 
from those who had followed Jesus while he was walking the earth. And at some point in and amongst his adventures of starting churches and travelling and building teams, he would write letters to these different churches. Some of the churches that he wrote to, he knew really well. Some of them he didn't necessarily know in person or he didn't know everyone in the church that was going to hear the reading of the letter. And that's what we have today. One of those letters to one of the churches, and and this is kind of the big one. If you really want to know Paul's theology, this is the, the really long, systematic theology. And like all his letters, he starts with that and then it gets to the practical. So all this big stuff about God and who he is and who we are, and then the so what, so how do we live? And that's what we're reading today, that practical outworking of how we live in the light of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And next week, Caroline is going to be preaching on the first half of this chapter, which you didn't hear today. So that's verses one to eight, which is all about our gifts and how we use them in the church. But today we're looking at those verses there. And our sermon series at the moment is is about all the things that church is more than. Because sometimes we can have these kind of limited, narrow ideas of what church is. Just this thing that we come to on a Sunday and if, if it's a good week, there'll be a coffee and the sound won't be screeching. But church is so much more than that. And we've gone through this series of what church is more than. And a few weeks ago, Tony spoke about how church is more than me. Church is more than a place where I come as an individual to have my needs met and my desires gratified. It's not a place where I come to consume. It's a place where I come to be with others, to love and care for them, to be part of a body. So that's great. So we want to be a church that really looks after one another, that looks beyond ourselves, that really loves each other radically. But this morning, I'm going to talk about how it's even more than that. Because church is not just for us here. Church is more than its members. It's more than church. It's about the rest of the world. How are we a city on a hill? How are we the light of the world that Jesus told us to be? And that is what this passage today talks about. And it gives us two really clear ways we can do that. We don't have to choose between love in the church and love for the world. We can have both. And that's what we see here. So the headline overall for all of this is that love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. And then what we get is around 20 different ways that we can live out that sincere love. Now, I'm doing a course at the moment and whenever I submit an assignment, it goes through this piece of magic software that kind of scans everything I've done and it looks for plagiarism. So it looks, am I copying other people? Am I quoting other people, which is what I'm supposed to do? And if I'm quoting them, am I referencing them properly and all that stuff? So everything I submit goes through this software and then the person grading my essay gets a report. And I thought I would do that to Paul. So I've gone through this passage and you, probably, you won't be able to see the detail, but you don't need to. But I've highlighted in yellow all the bits that are actually kind of taken from either direct quotes or really similar to other bits of scripture. And the next slide just shows you, if you can see it, all my scribbles. So we've got different colours. So um, red or pink on your screen is like the words of Jesus. Blue is New Testament. Green is Old Testament. I can send you this if you want it. But basically, you get the point, right? Paul's not really saying anything radically new here about sincere love and what it looks like. He's actually drawing together this tapestry from the Old Testament 
from the teachings of Jesus, from the things that maybe the other disciples had told Paul that Jesus had said. He's drawn it all together. He's sewn it all together for us. So 20 ways to live out sincere love. What connects them? How are they connected to my title today? I think the best analogy that that I could think of that helped me to think about this is of a healthy body. And we know that, you know, the body is an analogy for the church in scripture. And, you know, a healthy body is going to be healthy on the inside and then it's going to present a healthy exterior and relate well to the outside world. It's not going to overreact to every little thing that it comes into contact with. You know, oh, a bit of dust, I can't breathe. (laughs) Oh, a peanut, I'm going to die. You know, if everything's right inside then actually its reaction to the outside world is not going to overwhelm it. But nor will it underreact. So a healthy body in the presence of disease is going to mount an immune response. It is going to react to that disease and it's going to fight that disease and it's going to make antibodies and it's going to sort it out and get rid of it, hopefully without any medical intervention needed. And, and actually, our bodies do that all the time. So when everything's working well on the inside, it affects how the body relates to the outside world when our mental health, our our emotional health, our physical health, when all those things are good on the inside, we can live well in the world. Not overreacting, not underreacting. And I think it's the same with the church, that as things work well on the inside, as we're loving one another, as we're in perfect relationship with one another, and as we're relating to Jesus, our heads, we're going to relate well to the outside world. We're not going to overreact And we're not going to underreact to threats and dangers, but we're going to relate in a healthy and balanced way. And so we've we've talked, you know, Tony spoke a few weeks ago about how we can grow in our love for one another, how we can have that kind of internal health within the body. And I think a lot of this passage actually talks about that as well. And you might want to go back through it after and, and look at those things. But what I'm really going to focus on today is just two of those 20 things in here that talk about how we relate to the outside world, how that healthy body, the church, having love within, can then relate to the world. How is church more than church? How are we here for everyone else outside? What does that look like? And so the first of these that we're going to look at is the common good. So Romans 12, 17, do not repay anyone for evil, evil for evil, Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now, if if we read that one way, we could think that it's saying, make sure that you do everything the world says is good. Only what they agree is good. Make sure you do those things. But we know that Jesus didn't live like that. He healed on the Sabbath. He made divinity claims. He hung out with tax collectors and outcasts and the world did not always approve. And the early followers of Jesus didn't always do what the world thought was good. Them worshipping Jesus, it stirred up riots. In Ephesus, the local goddess was diminished in her importance and the idol worshippers were going to, like the idol makers were going to suffer economically. So there were riots Peter was imprisoned. John was beheaded to please a dancing princess. Jesus and his followers didn't always do what the watching world agreed was good. 
And of course, the world doesn't always agree what is good. And you know, this time that we're living in at the moment, we, we can really see that, can't we? There are different visions out there of what is good. So what does it mean? What is this verse telling us to do? How are we going to be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone? I think there's, there's two different ways to kind of hear that phrase, be careful. Maybe you grew up with um, a, a slightly over-anxious parent and every time you kind of wanted to go one rung higher on the climbing frame, they'd be, be careful. And, you know, actually it would make you more likely to fall, the panic in their voice. But, you know, there's that kind of emergency, be careful. But there's a different kind of care that we can take. And I think what's going on here is more like the way that you might take care if you had to write a letter to someone who you had hurt and you want to make sure that you're not misunderstood, that the misunderstandings that are there are cleared up, that they really know how you truly feel about them. You're trying to make peace. You're going to do it in a careful way. You're going to weigh up every word. You're going to think, what does this word mean to me and what might it mean to them? What do I want to get across here and how am I going to do that? Be careful. One is like a screaming parent in an emergency, but the other is actually more about taking time, giving deep consideration. And that is what the exhortation is for us here in this passage. Be careful. Pay close attention. Give your best thought to what the world agrees is good. Pay attention to it, and if possible, do it. And I think what that means is that at times we will do things that the world agrees are good. And at times we won't. But at all times we will be paying that careful attention to what the world is saying. A couple of illustrations that might help us think about this. Years ago now when growth was being set up, that's the night shelter that Luke spoke about earlier, there was actually a little bit of kind of backlash or opposition from the local authority. Maybe they were nervous that if we set up something that was going to be really great for people who are homeless, then maybe more would come into the area and that would make it more difficult to provide services. They didn't necessarily agree that it was good, but we did it anyway. And actually, it has been really good. And you know, over the years, sometimes I've gone and volunteered there with my non-Christian neighbours who have absolutely loved it and who have seen something of the heart of Jesus and the heart of the church as they volunteered at growth. It's the common good. Doesn't mean everyone has always agreed with us doing the night shelter, but it is the common good. It's the church working for the common good to house those who don't have homes and to give them love. Another example, and this might be a more controversial one for some of you, You might have heard of the American organisation Focus on the Family. They do lots of things. Uh, They're a very conservative organisation. And one of the things they do is campaign for the biblical definition of marriage as being between one man and one woman for life. And this means, as you can imagine, that they often have come into contact with organisations that campaign for redrawing the definition of marriage. And particularly over the years, they've come into a lot of conflict with LGBTQ organisations. In 2005, a guy called Jim Daly became the president of Focus on the Family. And he kind of carried on with the the projects and the things they were doing. 
But after some time, it came to his attention that the state that their headquarters were in was one of the worst for trafficking of teenagers. And he really wanted to do something about this. If, you know, if they were an organisation that was all about the family, all about what's best for children and young people within families, then they had to take this issue of trafficking really seriously. And so after a lot of thought, after careful consideration, he actually reached out to a local LGBTQ organisation in the same city. These two organisations were literally fighting each other, sometimes even in the courts, they were fighting each other over the definition of marriage. But he wondered if they could maybe fight together to protect teenagers. And, and they did. And it was a really successful partnership and it was one that confused a lot of people. It caused a lot of people to question. And not only that, but the leaders of those two organisations became good friends despite their differences, and, and they still disagree on a lot of those issues that they disagreed on. But they did find something that they could agree on and that they could fight together for, the common good. And you know, these, these things are really complex, aren't they? They're, they're challenging, they're not easy. It's not easy to decide who we should work with, who we should partner with. One of the things that we're quite careful about at THCC is that we don't get involved in any kind of interfaith services. We don't believe that that is a good thing. We think that that's really confusing for people. And actually, some of my devout Muslim friends would agree with me that we don't worship the same God. So why would we pretend we do by having a service together? We do need to look for the common good and where we can to pursue it, but not to get confused and not to present a confusing message to the world. And that example there from Focus on the Family, they found something that was the common good, but it didn't change those other things that they believed or that they campaigned on. But they found a place of agreement and they did pursue that. And we might find that if we got to know our neighbours better, even if there are big differences between us, there might be some goals we can agree on, some ways that we can work together. And in that process, we might be able to build friendships with them and share Jesus with them. So we need to do it carefully. Not just saying yes to every invitation to speak at everything. Not, not just going with whatever partnership rocks up. Not just getting behind every movement that wants followers. But really carefully considering what is the common good? How should we respond as the church of Jesus? We don't do it casually. We do it deliberately. But it is possible so that's the first way from this passage that we relate to those outside the church. Church is more than us. It's how we relate to the rest of the world. And one of those is by pursuing the common good where we can. The really controversial part of this passage is how we treat our enemies. Loving our enemies. Romans twelve fourteen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. There was a recent study that took a group of Manchester United fans. Have we got any Man United fans here? I'm sorry, I know that when it's me preaching, normally you get a week off from football analogies, but you got one today. So, a group of Man United fans, and they got them in a room, and they got them to write an essay on why they support Man United. Why do you love this team? And they, so they're all there, and you know, they've got 30 minutes or whatever to just think through how much they love Man United and why, and they did it. 
And then they're told, right, you need to go to another building now across the campus for the second part of the study. So off they go, one by one. And on the way, they see a runner lying on the ground, moaning in pain. Now here's the thing. If that runner was wearing a Man United shirt, 90% of them stopped to help. If they were wearing a Liverpool shirt, only 30% stopped to help. So the moral of the story is don't wear football kit if you're out running. Or maybe it's that Man United fans are really mean. <laughs> Not really. I think what it shows is how tribal we can be. And actually how artificial some of those allegiances can be. How meaningless. And that study was actually called the Good Samaritan study. And the origin of the Good Samaritan story is, of course, Jesus himself. And I haven't got time to read it for you this morning, but maybe this week you could take some time and read in Luke 10, that original story that Jesus told of a man who's attacked by robbers and injured really seriously, whose own people don't help him, but then who is helped by someone from the other side, an enemy. And actually, the, the reason Jesus tells that story is in answer to a question, who is my neighbour? And Jesus is challenging his listeners to expand, to redefine their definition of neighbour, to include within that even their enemies. Here's Jesus in his big sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 to 44. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus expands that group that we're meant to love to even include enemies. And that goes against our instincts. Our instinct is to form tribes, to draw lines that say, this is my people and that's not my people. And when times are good, that kind of goes unnoticed. In this room, we've got fans of all different football teams and none but none of us have ever killed each other I don't think we've ever had a physical fight in church over football actually just this week in London um, there was a fight over football and there's a man really seriously injured in hospital at the moment who may die and that's because of football when there's times of scarcity if there's not enough to go around then suddenly those differences between my people and not my people get magnified People who've coexisted for generations, next door neighbours even, have been drawn into genocide in loads of different places in the world. Stirred up, yes, by people who exploit those division lines. Not my people become the enemy. But the Jesus way is to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, not to curse, but to bless. To bless is to speak good things into action for someone, to genuinely desire their flourishing and to bless our enemies, to bless those who curse us does not come naturally. It is against every instinct that we have. It's not just about squishing our tribalism because it might mean forgiving genuine wrong that's been done to us. One of our mission partnerships is with a small church in central Lebanon and that church are pouring out their lives, serving the Syrian refugees that live among them. So far, so impressive. 
What you need to know is that until not that long ago, in our lifetimes, the Syrian army was occupying Lebanon. And some of the Christians that we've spent time with there lost family members in that conflict. Had family members killed by Syrian soldiers and now they're being asked to love and share the very little that they have with that same people group. And some of them have found it really hard. We've had conversations with them where they've talked about that process of loving their enemies and, and the, the grief and the challenge of that. It's not an easy thing. You don't just wake up one morning with a smile on your face and do it. It's hard, but they've done it. It's the way of Jesus, enemy love. And they continue to do it in a situation that is actually getting harder and harder but it shines so brightly in that place and, it, and it's noticeable. People from outside the church notice when the church loves its enemies, they're affected by it. Why is it so central to the Christian message? Because God himself is the ultimate lover of enemies. You know, Paul, who wrote this letter that we're studying today, he himself had received that love when he was an enemy. The book of Acts tells us the story of the early Christian movement, the first church. And let's just look at how we first meet this guy, Paul, who used to be called Saul. So a man called Stephen, really good guy, is about to be stoned to death for his faith. Literally, rocks are going to be thrown at him until his body is so broken that the life goes out of him. It's a very brutal way to die. And this is where Paul first comes on the scene. So Acts 7, 57 to 8 verse 3. At this, so at Stephen's declaration, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he'd said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So there he is. There's our hero. There's the guy who's writing to us these challenging things about sincere love. It's like he, he watches this brutal killing. He approves of it. And then it's like he just stirred up this bloodlust and he's going house to house, dragging the Christians off. And he calls the church to bless those who persecute them. And he's been a persecutor himself. He's been one who participated in a stoning. But you know, he's got experience on the other side as well. So to be fair to him, let's just check that out. Acts 14, 19 to 20. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. Now, firstly, oh my gosh, stoned, they think you're dead and then the next day you're off on your travels. But 
the guy who'd been involved in this great intense persecution is now the recipient of it himself. The stoner getting stoned. What made Paul able to love his enemies? What made him so passionate about it? To tell others to do the same, to write these things to the church in Rome. He was a recipient of enemy love. He was an enemy of Christ, but God loved him. God went after him. This is what John, one of the other writers of the New Testament, this is what John writes about all of us. This is how God showed his love among us. This is 1 John 4, 9 to 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. All of us who are followers of Jesus, who are called to this really challenging at times way of living, to love our enemies, we we do it because we ourselves were enemies who were loved. We ourselves were enemies who were forgiven. Jesus on the cross, Father forgive them, they don't know what it is that they do. Jesus set the standard, he did it, he reached out to us. It says in scripture that God looks on those who are not my people and calls them my people and that's us. We've received enemy love. and So we're called to live in that ourselves. So to summarise this passage today and the way that we think about how church is more than just us here in church. It's about how we relate to the world outside. Love must be sincere without hypocrisy, with a practical demonstration. And as we pursue love in church and as we enjoy what that is like to be part of a church family that's thriving, We've got to be careful that doesn't make us tribal or inward looking. We've got to turn our attention, turn our hearts to those outside, outside the family, because we know that that's, that's where God's eyes are. We must give our most careful attention to the ways that we can agree with our neighbours on the common good and pursue those things. We follow the example of our great God, who pursued us with love while we were his enemies. We look to Jesus, who on the cross prayed for the forgiveness of those who put him there. And we love our enemies. We bless those who curse us. We pray for those who hate us and who harm us. I'm going to ask the band to come back up now. I want to invite you to think about your response to what you've heard this morning. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus and and maybe there's some challenge in there for you. I know that even this week as I've been preparing this, I've been really challenged about how I think about the people that are my enemies and actually most of my enemies, it's for very trivial reasons. I've been really challenged by living out that love that I've received. And maybe you're not a follower of Jesus maybe you're kind of here to find out what that is and and what it might mean in your life and I hope that what you can take from this today is that even while 
all of us were far off from God, didn't want anything to do with him, not interested, don't want to know what he has to say for our lives. That was when he chose to reach out to us. He is the God who wants to call his enemies his friends. That is his heart. And we see that. It's not, you know, like I said, it's not just a New Testament thing. It's not just a Jesus thing. Actually, it's there in the Old Testament too. And loads of what Paul was taking there in that passage comes from there. Right through the message of the whole Bible, we see a God who loves those who've rejected him and pursues them relentlessly, goes out after the missing sheep, chases them down because he loves them. So I'm going to end this sermon the way that Paul ends this passage. Romans 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.